0: Ultimately, what makes a really beautiful piece of architecture, a timeless piece of architecture, is that it feels alive. And that aliveness comes from understanding how we interact with each other and with the things around us. might be a creek that, you know, moves and sounds in a certain way, and so the space around it is structured so that you can enjoy that moment of the day might be that there's a migration of birds that come into a set of trees somewhere and so there's a space that celebrates that. It might be there's a market so then you know you have a window where you can see the market stalls going up every day but it's all about interaction. In today's episode, we'll be having a conversation about design, how we understand it as a process to provide solutions, both for technology as well as for products and for spaces, and potentially even artistic pieces, and how that relates to engineering, to technology, and to architecture. Yeah, I'm going to get Saktos host down. That <laughs> to yes. happen. How did she just
1: come with that? <laughs> You're listening to Create the Future, a podcast from the Queen Elizabeth Prize for engineering I'm Roma Agrawal an engineer author and broadcaster and your host for this new series I was just gonna say and me, <laughs> <Rebecca>. <laughs> <Just for> me. <laughs> I'm completely excited today that I get to sit with a really great friend of mine, Rebecca Ramos, in a fabulous studio in East London. So, Rebecca, can you introduce yourself
0: for us, please? Yes, of course. I'm Rebecca Ramos. I'm originally from Venezuela, where I trained as an architect, and I've worked in design arts and architecture ever since. Um, I've then come to London. I've worked in architecture here for over a decade and just started my studio in 2019, which I'm now running.
1: So here to talk about design, about design, art, architecture, engineering, what all of these things mean. You know, Rebecca and I have known each other for nearly 10 years now, I think. Oh, God. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. Yeah. And we met because we are both judges for the Queen Elizabeth Prize for Engineering Trophy Competition, which, of course, is all about young people designing stuff, understanding the process of bringing different elements together to create a product. And, and then we are the very lucky people that get to look at those designs and um, turn them into a real object. Can you tell me a little bit about design?
0: What do you think design means? Mm. I have a really specific opinion about design over I multiple it. musings, it. <laughs> And I think it's actually the process of creating something. It's the process of developing a solution. When you think about design, is a term that's used in technology, it's used in the arts, it's used in architecture, yeah. it's used in engineering as well. <laughs> yeah. And we design solutions. So it's a process for me of creation, and it can produce a multitude of things. Um, yeah. Can I flip the question here and in the, in the dynamics of this episode and ask you, Roma Agrabul? <laughs> I'm terrified now. <laughs> Well, what what do you think is the role of engineering and design? And why do you think design is important and the relationship with the arts and architecture?
1: It's, it's funny, right? Because I tell people, for example, that I worked on the design of the shard or I worked on the design of a footbridge. And they get really, really confused because they think of design as just being this is what it's going to look like or something. Mm. And I'm saying, no, but for me, taking a force and then converting that into a number which then applies to a steel cable is design as well because i'm i'm understanding what the physical elements are around us i'm understanding what the earth is doing gravity to our structures what wind is doing what nature is doing and then what humans are going to do with with our own weight or with the weight of the technology and the stuff that we need and then I'm converting all of that into a number, essentially, to then apply that to a material. And to me, that's design. That's a part of design. And it kind of goes to that process you were talking about of having something you need to achieve or something that you're trying to solve and creating that process to get there. So for me, there I mean, there must be an infinity <laughs> types of design that a person can do. But from a purely engineering point of view, that's the way I see it. And then I see that as being part of helping an architect achieve their vision of what they have designed. Mm. So there's kind of, for me, multiple layers of design
0: that have to intersect in order to get the best product at the end of it. It's really interesting that I think the brief is so key, right, of what Mm -hmm. it is, the thing that you want to get out of at the end. It could be a fabric. It could be a car. It could be a piece of furniture. It could be a building. It could be an experience. Mm. Um, It could be a theater show. And then you design through this process. You design, bring in different disciplines to get to that result. As an engineer, you might be focusing on looking at the world from a specific point of view. And me, as an artist, I look at it from another specific point of view. And when we come together, hopefully we just bring those two points of view together through the design process, Mm -hmm. depending on the design process and how it's led, and that will lead to a very particular and special result that's individual to each person and to each process.
1: So I love this idea that, you know, the coming together of different ideas, professions and so on. And it almost feels like design is the umbrella that holds all of us together. You talked about having something like a brief Mm. to which you then design. Mm. So talk to me a little bit about that and how can we come up with a great
0: design brief? Amazing. I love this question. My belief around architecture and the arts is really that they're an ultimate cultural expression. So they're here to show and to leave a mark of how we interact with each other, to define and elevate how we interact with each other. And if you want to think about legacy, then to mark how... There was a period of time in which we interacted in a certain way. And it's how I approach architecture. I don't come at it as a resolution of a form or a resolution of a series of physical forms. It's a wish for interactions. A really special example of that was probably the highlight of my career as an employee in in London was joining Heatherwick studio and being asked to lead the design in the project for Maggie's Care Centre in Leeds. And Maggie's are a great organisation. They're um, a non-profit organisation that provides pastoral and psychological and emotional support for people facing cancer and their family and friends. And um, Maggie's has an exceptional brief where they talk about the what they want the emotional interactions to Mm. be with the Mm -hmm. building, what they want people to be feeling while they're working through the building. It's really a, a really inclusive space that is aiming to become a home for people. It's in Yorkshire, which is the most diverse kind of region of England and when you think about how to create a sense of home that's welcoming mm. for over 60,000 people a year then you really have to start thinking in almost metaphysical terms of what does home mean universally and how can we create something that would be as universal as possible. So when you start weaving those experiences and giving them a shape and a form that gives you freedom for the form to vary and to have multiple results that can then adapt to things such as budgets, such as materials, mm. such yep. as texture, such as light, and more physical things, but the sensation and the experience then becomes the ultimate thing.
1: So it's almost thinking about, often we will say, There's a plot of land here and we need a building. And maybe we start with that, with the shell, and then think, oh, okay, we could put this in it or could put that in it. But what you're saying is that the people and the interactions and the emotion should come first.
0: Yes, I wholeheartedly believe that. And I think that's proven in the evolution of how our society has gone, and particularly in the last five years now. I feel like COVID was yesterday. But, you know, there was already a need for a cultural shift Mm. in the way that we were interacting. And when you think about it, the role of commissioners, when you think about who's building cities around us at the moment, the impact of private commissioners, of companies is significant over decades, over large territories of land and over multitude of cultures. So, The challenge of physicality is not really at the core of what we can do. We can now go to the moon, (laughs) (laughs) you know, we can do amazing things. So then we had a moment around the globe when we realized that it was important to reconnect with each other Mm. and how we were treating each other, which is what we've been experiencing as a really exciting transformational moment in culture and in history. So now the shift has come into even, you know, I've had clients or former clients have come to me and said, we commissioned this amazing piece of architecture years ago, but it's not working. Yeah. Because the way that people interact within it is too harsh or is mm. built around productivity or is built around really inhumane concepts. So I think the kind of next fr- frontier is to figure out how do we put this at the forefront again, which is people, you know, we're, we're having that cultural conversation of a four-day week of, yes. you know, hybrid ways of working, of how to have really inclusive spaces that genuinely celebrate different cultures, um, not just the ones that we're used to, but give openness to new manifestations. So when we start thinking about the process that way, and we put that at the core and then we go okay how does this interact with the measurable factors that we know like profit or strategic <laughs> objectives KPIs, or yes kpis, and KPIs and, <laughs> which are very important yes exactly <laughs> and we need to keep in mind because it's how you know our world operates and of course you know the big monster of climate change when we're having to our industry is responsible for 40% of emissions and so i think my kind of line of thinking is about being more intentional with what we build mm. and then exploring alternative technologies yeah. to then really take the time to think, is this really worth building and how is it worth building it?
1: Yeah. You talked a little bit about the idea of revisiting the way we are creating our buildings, and um, particularly after the pandemic. So what do you think we could have done differently, perhaps in the past, that would have changed the way we responded to lockdown and to the pandemic?
0: Mm, I think there's a difficult thing to answer, isn't it? Because it, everyone's a critic. <laughs> and it's easy in retrospect, I mean, isn't it? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> what
1: can we, Maybe what can we learn so that we can apply yeah. as we go f- to the future, hopefully not yeah. towards another pandemic, but, you know, yeah. other situations that yeah. may arise?
0: I think You know, an answer to both questions, I guess. One thing, because I've lived in several parts of the world, from Venezuela, there's a lot of informal construction. There's beautiful kind of cultural knowledge of people building their own spaces and their own homes through what they've learned, either by working somewhere else or by traditions brought down from colonial history, from black history, from indigenous traditions. So there's all this kind of rich... Mm. cultural connection yeah. to creating something around you and that it's really meaningful because the public space then becomes an understanding of it as a social and kind of political space of things. So that I've always had that vision and that understanding of it yeah. and that I think a lot of my colleagues now in a, in a diaspora of migration share. Um, we were talking earlier about a book that I love uh, from Christopher Alexander that talks about the timeless way of building and he speaks of the quality without a name. Mm -hmm. And so he starts talking about almost breaking down everything we would understand as a space of a wall or, you know, a series of walls and starting getting into the abstraction of ultimately what makes a really beautiful piece of architecture, timeless piece of architecture, is that it feels alive. Mm -hmm. And that aliveness comes from understanding how we interact with each other and with the things around us. And that might be a creek that, you know, moves and sounds in a certain way. And so the space around it is structured so that you can enjoy Mm. that moment of the day. Yeah. It might be that there's a migration of birds that come into a set of trees somewhere. And so there's a space that celebrates that. It might be there's a market. So then, you know, you have a window where you can see the market stalls going up every day. But it's all about interaction. Yeah. I always like to say buildings are kind of a stage for life. And um, a building without a life is kind of a monument, really. You know, you're kind of in the presence of this big thing, mm. but it doesn't feel inviting to for you to be a part of it.
1: Yeah. You've also told me the story of your grandmother who made shoes. And I absolutely adore that story because it relates to a lot of what you talk about in terms of, you know, quality and craft over just mass production of stuff. So tell me a little bit about how she influenced you. Yeah, my
0: obsession with shoes.
1: Um, <laughs> I mean, who who doesn't have
0: that? So my grandmother, uh, this story is about my, my mother's mother, and she grew up, during war times in Spain and then uh, migrated to Venezuela, ironically, then me doing the same thing back over here, when, um, you know, there was a buoyant time. There was oil. People got on boats and went over there. And there was an influx of, you know, multicultural rebirth in Venezuela at the time uh, and, and in other spaces in Latin America. So she was a part of that. But she brought with her this amazing passion for craftsmanship, and for being connected with how things are made. Really uh, a big advocate of buying well, so buying things that were gonna last a lifetime, which I continue to do. And this obsession to teach me what a good shoe was <laughs> and how a good shoe was made, because she worked in a shoe factory during the war. So that really taught me, I think I have that relationship mostly with garments more mm-hmm. than anything. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I really appreciate something that's really well made and I will invest in that and I will wear it to death for years and then repairing it. So mm. she then taught me how to repair it and I like to think of it almost like a skin, so it, it has a story. Um, and now I think culturally we're going back to the art of repair and understanding that it's a really important part of regressing some of the damage that we've done with yes. overproduction. Yeah. So I think and also gives you... I think it grounds the understanding of how things around us are made. I mean, what do you think, as an engineer? <laughs> I mean, my whole new book, um, hashtag subtle plug, is about.
1: <laughs> um, <laughs> um, it is. It's about that topic. It's about how our world seems to be, have become so complicated that, you know, we have these phones that we use all the time, but how many of us actually have any understanding of how it works? Mm. How do calls get transmitted through the air? How does it charge up? What's the lens in there that's taking all these photographs and selfies that we're taking all the time? And as an engineer, what I'm really interested and keen on doing is to almost reignite people's curiosity. Because I always say we're born curious. Mm. My child breaks stuff all the time and I can't even get annoyed with her because what she's trying to do is explore and understand things. And there was a time where she just threw everything. And she's like, oh, that bounces. And oh, that smashed. Like it's part of your education of how the world works. But I think we lose that at some point, especially in the modern world with all this complicated technology. So I'm really, really interested in breaking this complexity down into its component parts, understanding those component parts that have stories, histories, people, human interaction, all of that wrapped up in it, and then think about, well, how do we want to build that up in a better way Mm. moving forward? And so for me, this idea of being more conscious as engineers is like we created plastic, for example, Mm. a few decades ago, Mm. and it was this revolutionary material, rightly so, but then how do we use it in the responsible way? It's not plastic that's the problem. It's mm-hmm. the processes, the amount we produce, the way we produce it, and then the lack of reuse, recycle that makes it the problem. So it's not about necessarily attacking a particular material or whatever, but thinking about how we can consciously use the things that we have in a way that you know, in 200 years' time or 1,000 years' time, our stuff is not going to cause a problem for the generations that will hopefully <laughs> um, be
0: there at that point in time, yeah, and I love that I did. I think questioning what our role is as professionals in our industries. I always have these conversations in public. Where people go, "What do architects do? Um, what kind of architect are you?" And what and I
1: get is, "Sorry, you're a structural engineer. Does that mean you're an architect?" Exactly. And and, and yeah, there's, there's just a kind of lack of understanding. There's yeah, and I think that's our
0: our failure. Yeah, that we yeah. have not been very good at communicating that and. Uh, you know, really meeting people where they are and conveying the value of the knowledge. So I think we've overly kind of focused on developing our own knowledge. We mm-hmm. go to our, you know, really lovely celebrations of each other when we go, your timber looks amazing, now your concrete <laughs> looks better, now your steel <laughs> looks incredible. But we forget to then go, oh, wait a second, there's like 90% of the population over here yeah. that are doing things as they can, and they might not have access to that knowledge, which is why I think it's really interesting to then start interrogating, what is our role then? You know, there's a, there's a role of specialization and innovation, and we're figuring out new materials, we're figuring out revolutionary ways of building, but how do we get to the point where that knowledge is transferred and adopted in a yeah. way that genuinely has an impact?
1: I always come back to this mind-boggling statistic. The RIBA, which is the Royal Institution of British Architects, has a statistic that says fewer than 6% of buildings in the UK are
0: actually designed by
1: architects.
0: Yes, which is <laughs> shocking. And I think, you know, it's it's one uh, sentence I love to say to all of my colleagues because, and as a wake-up call to myself of what are we actually doing <laughs> yeah. right how and and it's not about the profession itself or where it's going it's about its role in society what is the role of the architect and being that we're only influencing 6% of the construction and out of that 6% maybe we award a 1% that is utterly sustainable that is genuinely mm. creating buildings that are offsetting carbon footprint right so we we are linked in the way that architecture is highly reliant on the construction industry and the, the model of construction is to build more in order to mm. grow financially. Mm. So architects need to build more in order to have a financially sustainable business. So then how do we shift that and what's the role of the architect? And, and that, those are the questions that I'm, you know, going to sleep with soundly every night.
1: <laughs> do, do you get any sleep? <laughs> um, it's, it almost seems contradictory to me because on one hand, you know, we think of architecture, of, you know, urban design, urban planning, engineering as being such influential professions and and people and, you know, places to be. But then on the other hand, the reality is that actually our involvement is quite small, but then construction is also, as you said, this huge emitter of carbon. And so that there is some kind of contradiction there about what, architects, engineers see themselves as and what is the actual impact that we're having. I have a, I have a question for you about education. What do you think designers, architects, engineers, artists mm. should be studying? How mm. should we be
0: educating the next generation of all the above? Mm. I had a really lovely experience in 2021, I believe, where uh, Pedro Gil, who's now leading Uh, a a unit in the Bartlett, uh, was focusing on Latin American architecture. And Mm. then we did, he called me in to help with, um, well, the students couldn't really go to Venezuela, they were focusing on Venezuela. There's not a lot of documentation about our cultural heritage. So I kind of created and produced this weird festival over a week, bringing my friend in New York who's doing, you know, incredible uh, industrial design with uh, the foundation of Carlos Cruz in Paris, who's a master of color and one of the most celebrated fine artists of our times, and music, history, and brought in together Jaime Healy, who's based here in, in London, who's a, a painter and, and works a lot in integrating art into architecture. And we tried to paint a picture of this is the wealth of amazing mm. culture and knowledge that we had there. And something really important that I personally get quite frustrated about when I've been to schools is how how to crack open curiosity for the history mm. of building of other parts of the world. Yeah, because particularly with Latin America, with I'm sure you have opinions about India as well, and you have an incredible history there. Yeah, and I find it frustrating when we end up having conversations where I've been in decision making rooms and we're talking about repeating errors of typologies mm. or, or not looking at previous examples of when it's gone wrong yeah. and how to improve it. Yeah. Because it's in areas that we don't really like to talk about and it's not, it's not in London, it's not in Paris, it's not in, or in, the, in, in the vicinity. So I think that is something that I would love to see the schools do more of. I
1: 100% agree. And I think with engineering as well, we just don't learn about the human beings full stop behind, the, behind mm. the engineering, but then also looking at the human beings all around the world, not just in one particular part of the world. Mm. But then to top that off, you trained as an architect in Venezuela. And then what
0: happened when you came to the UK? Yeah, it wasn't recognized. So I had a, a really unique and privileged education that I'm really proud of, which is I went to, at the time, the best architecture and urban design school. In the country, it was free, so it was a university that was paid covered by the state, and it was really really hard to get into. So yeah. it, it's a it's a um, world heritage of modern architecture, beautiful piece of mm. architecture embedded with incredible gardens, uh, incredible art pieces, uh, Bassarelli, Calder, and really beautiful example of integration of the art. Um, and engineering into architecture. So mm. that was the school. So you would, like, <laughs> walk around with this insane kind of perforated bricks that let the light in in different kind of ways during the day. And you would sit there reading a book in a kind of make microclimate because of the way the shade and the, the covers oh, were designed. Goosebumps. So, yeah, so it was, <laughs> it was a really privileged space to be learning about what space is yeah. and how to craft that. And as a part of the education with engineering... It was really strict in that we couldn't really, you c- couldn't really get a license as an architect unless you had designed the totality of the building three times within right, our years of study. Right, that's so
1: interesting. So, so I had to
0: calculate the mechanical engineering components, the structural engineering components, the electrical engineering, and do an entire project of a building um, before I could then access the final year. That's why I'm chartered in the engineering's yes. um, That makes sense. Institution as well as the architect. I mean,
1: as long as you've done some bending moment diagrams, exactly. I mean, don't ask me. Then you're (laughs) legit. I'll I'll give that to you. Don't ask me to do that
0: again. Like it's kind of gone somewhere in you know the forgotten land of knowledge down there. But when then coming to the UK, I was told, you know, you're not really qualified, and so I had to start from zero again as an assistant. And even though I ended up leading projects, I was not paid. Necessarily in the same way, yeah. Um, because I was still being assessed in whatever equivalent that was being seen, not for the ability or
1: yeah.
0: or the job that I was doing. So it was it was a really, really challenging kind of path to then come to almost go back to the Where level you were, yeah. yeah ten years ago yeah would, yeah. So yeah. when Maggie's came, you know, I, I had had some pretty amazing mentors who had seen what I was capable of, and they were like, look, this is really hard, you you know, you have to take this opportunity because no one's actually going to give something like this to you here. Um, and that was really when I grabbed it with all my full force of, of being because um, it's what allowed me to, in a way, get to where I was before I had to migrate and leave my country. So, Rebecca, tell me what is the future of design? I think, you know, when you look at immersive technologies now as a tool as well, And you start thinking about how will we be interacting with our world in a very near future? We're already in blended reality. We already know that there's going to be a digital layer. Um, Right now it's through devices Mm -hmm. and things that we put on and that we touch, which to my grandmother, for example, was Incomprehensible. She couldn't even understand what a touchscreen was.
1: Yeah. Right? And my three-year-old is, like, swiping everything because she thinks everything's a
0: touchscreen. <laughs> exactly. And now we have XR, so which is literally probably going to hit the market very soon. Uh, these Tell are me what network. XR is. So it's blended reality in which we will have, you know, if now we have virtual reality where you have to get a set of goggles and you put it on your head and yep. then you go into a computing-generated environment, uh, XR is going to be a blend of, you know, having a digital layer on the real world, right? So that then opens up a new set of how are we interacting mm. with each other? What does this mean? Mm-hmm. And what does this mean in my particular case for how we build things? And I think it just begs the question of do we really need to build everything? Mm. And do we really need to build in the same way that we did before? You know, by the time in 20 years time, the understanding and the technology will be in a whole different level. Mm -hmm. So we need to be engaging with these cultural spaces really to continue having relevance and impact. And those are the subjects that we're exploring at the studio. So we have incredible engineering partners that um, really are selected and have curated through interaction Mm -hmm. and what is their focus on interaction. So one of them, again, fantastic, James Patton in New York, uh, who I've collaborated with, and, and James has incredible technology where he focuses on physical interactions and how to create emotional connections through technology. So a blend of robotics, of digital imaging, uh, an exceptional art director in the studio that creates really beautiful, really beautiful interactive kind of experiences. And then if you take that to the immersive world, they have other partners around the world where they have exceptional technology where we're working in not simulation, as we used to understand it Mm -hmm. before, but embodiment, which means that you are inside a virtual space. So we're working with technology that's been... Um, specifically defined for the arts and for architecture. So it's about feeling. It's about sens- sensory experiences. Whereas gaming was, you know, and somehow the yeah. touch, you have a character that's yeah. kind of going through an exciting world. Yeah. When you think about architecture, when you love a building, is because there's uh, materiality, there's yeah. light coming you're in a similar way. You're surrounded by it and you're, you're, you know, you're physically a part of it. Exactly. Yeah. So... We are working with incredible inventors who are focusing on that sensory part Mm. of uh, technology. And and then that, to me, opens up the conversation of, okay, let's start creating really amazing artistry and architecture here. It allows us to explore what the vocabulary of architecture is to be a lot freer Mm -hmm. with our self-expression as well. And to reach more people, because if we were talking about 6% of the people in the UK having access to buildings designed by architects, when you think about who's interacting with these technologies and the billions of people around the world, our reach is a lot bigger and our impact is a lot bigger. So if we engage with these technologies intentionally, I believe we can then start getting at the forefront of where culture is going. Rebecca, I've
1: absolutely adored our conversation. I think we've been talking about doing something like this for years now. And what I'm going to really take away from our conversation, of course, the concept of curiosity. I'm going to be thinking about design as a process, as a verb. Um, I'm going to be thinking about how we can work together right from the start better. But I think for me, what I'm really taking away from all of this is that whether it's art, design, engineering or architecture, what we want to be doing is centering human emotions into the conversation. So thank you so much for such a brilliant conversation. Thank you for having me.
0: This has been such a wonderful pleasure that I've been looking forward to for years, as you said. So we it. We've yes, done it. we've done it. I'm really <laughs> excited to see what's next. And congratulations. The podcast is great.
1: You've been listening to Create the Future, a podcast from the Queen Elizabeth Prize for Engineering and Peanut and Crumb. This episode was hosted by me, Roma Agrawal. It was produced by Jude Shapiro and Bridie Addison Child. Look out for new episodes every fortnight with conversations from pioneering engineers, designers, technologists and thinkers. To find out more, follow QE Prize on Twitter, Instagram and Facebook.